And now, the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Yes, there were, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall. I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed, and cried I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, no, not me, I did it my way. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows, I took the blows. I did it my way. We like doing things our way, don't we? We love doing things our way. We don't want anyone to tell us how to think. We don't want any, anyone to tell us what we should or what we shouldn't do. And when we make a decision, the last thing we want is for someone to tell us that we are wrong. I even get annoyed sometimes when people tell me I'm right. <laughs> Don't tell me anything. Just leave me alone. I'm doing it my way. And like the Sultan of Swoon himself, we do it our way. But what if my way isn't the best way? Someone might say, I, well, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather be wrong than have someone else tell me what to do. And to be honest, I can understand that. But how far are we willing to go? Doesn't there come a point when the cost is just too high, when the risks are too great, that doing it my way just isn't worth it? According to the Bible, this thing that we hold very, very high here, according to that, doing things our way, it could be actually... It not could be, it absolutely is certainly the very worst thing that we could possibly do. And it makes that crystal clear from the very beginning. So we're going to take a few moments together this morning and consider why God's way is so much better than my way. So if you haven't already, let's turn to the book of Genesis. Again, we're in chapter 2, and we're going to read together from verse 4, and let's stand together as we read from God's Word. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the question for us is, his way or my way? Last week, we saw that this majestic, self-existent, self-sufficient, astonishingly powerful and creative creator of all things is the one responsible for all that we see. He's powerful. He's good. He's sovereign. And the way that he created all of this stuff, it says something about who he is. He looks at everything and he concludes, it's good. It's, it's very good. And here in verse 4 of chapter 2, we step into a new section. The Hebrew word that we're going to see again and again in our study of Genesis is this word called toledah. And it designates new sections in the book. And basically this word just means this. It means account, it means record, genealogy, history. It could mean generations as we see in our text here this morning. But it's important that we note that as we're diving into this chapter, chapter 2, we don't look at this as an alternate account. It's not that Moses had these different creation traditions here and he didn't know what to do with them, so he just threw them all into the beginning of Genesis. That's not what's going on here. Instead, Moses is being a little bit more like that fictional TV forensic scientist that you see on maybe like some of these crime shows that you watch. And what he's doing here is he's looking at what happened and now he's zooming in and enhancing it so that we get a better understanding of something very, very important, something that really matters here. He's going to help us see what really happened here and is at the heart of our story. The question is, What part is he zooming in on? If we look at Genesis chapter 1 and we see all the days that are listed there, where does this chapter 2, where does it fit in there? Notice verse 5. 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small, small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, it says. Now, at first glance, we might think that what he's zooming in on is this time right before that God created plants and trees and all of that kind of stuff. That part where it says, let vegetation spring forth. Plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. That's what it seems like he's zooming in on. But actually, there's good reason to think that he's talking about a time after that. After there already was vegetation, after there already were trees, after he created all of those things, and just before he created the very first human being. It's not that there weren't any plants or trees in the land that God created. It's that there weren't any of the, the frustrating ones, the ones that kind of get in the way. They're dangerous to other plants. They're, they're counterproductive. They spring up. Where you, the places where you just, why? Why is this thing springing up right here? I don't want this. We've had a lot of them spring up on our campus the past few weeks because we've had all this crazy rain all around us. And, and I've walked this campus during the week, and you, you see them everywhere. And I thank God that someone finally jumped in and said, this isn't good, and he, and he started spraying and taking care of all of this stuff. And, and, it, and it, was, it was good. After Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, God curses the land, we're told. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, something springs up. Thorns, thistles spring up. Any of you gardeners out there, you know these things are just so frustrating. They're so annoying. We don't like them. And what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2 is a picture of the world before anything went wrong. What was it like? Well, first of all, there were, no, there were, there were plants, but there were no bothersome plants. Look at verse 5 again. No bush of the field. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord had not caused it to rain on the land. Not only were there none of these frustrating plants, but he mentions that there was no rain. Now here in California, we hear something like that, and something resonates with us, and we say, uh, no rain? That's not a good thing. That's, that's, uh, that's not a... Rain is not a curse to us. We need rain. We want more of it. It's a blessing to have rain. In fact, just, just recently, the news reported that for the first time in seven years, we're finally out of a drought. Praise God, this is a great thing. So we might look at verse 5 and we might say, rain? No rain? This doesn't sound like paradise to me. This doesn't sound like a good point in creation history It's not good if there's no other source of water. If you don't have rain and there's no other source of water, no other way of irrigating things, then it's actually not good. But we see that the land wasn't without water. There was water here. In verse 6, we read there was a mist. That word could also be translated spring. And it was coming up and it was watering the whole face of the land, we're told. And just like the absence of bushes here, the absence of rain uh, in the land 
this was an indicator. This is what we're looking at. It's before everything went south. In fact, we'll see in the weeks ahead that when rain finally comes, it's actually a sign of punishment. This isn't a good thing. God says to Noah in chapter 7, In seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. No bad plants, no rain. Not only that, we see another thing here in verse 5. There was no man to work the ground. Working the ground, that's something that was going to come after the fall. God declares as part of the curse in chapter 3, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In verse 23 we read, Therefore the Lord God sent out from the Garden of Eden, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. No longer was the land just going to produce everything that this man needed. No, it was going to take a great deal of effort now. This man was going to have to work to to survive, to live there, to get these plants to produce food. It was going to be difficult. It was going to be frustrating. It was going to be disappointing and discouraging. But that's not the way we see things here in chapter 2. What an incredible picture we get here in chapter 2. Things were looking pretty, pretty good before the first man showed up. Springs are gushing forth. They're watering the whole land. Only good plants are growing here. No help was needed to make any of this happen. It's running just the way that God had designed it to run. This was his way. But these first couple of verses, they clue us into the fact that things aren't going to last that way. It's not always going to be this way, is it? We can already see on the horizon, there's going to come a time when things start to fall apart. They take a turn for the worse, and the land is actually going to turn against humanity. And since we're on the subject, let's talk about humanity. Let's look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now that's a very, very different picture of the creation of humanity than the one we got in Genesis 1, isn't it? It's very different. In chapter 1, we're told that humanity was gloriously created. They were created in the image of God. This is amazing. So apart from everything else, every sea creature, every land-dwelling animal, uh, humanity is set apart and made special. But here in chapter 2, we're told that the first man was made out of the dust of the ground. So according to chapter 1, humanity's existence is of paramount significance. In chapter 2, the beginnings are absolutely humble. These aren't super creatures created from stardust. Some meteorite comes and, wow, Superman. And it's not that. 
These are creatures that have been made from the lowliest of ingredients. From up out of the ground, God forms these creatures, and he breathes into them, and like those dry bones that we see in Ezekiel, they start rattling, and they come together, and then skin starts to cover them, muscles are covering them, they come together, full human bodies, and then God breathes into them. God breathes into these this first human, and he comes alive. They owe absolutely everything to him. Have you ever held a a trophy in your hands? Or maybe you've had a medal placed around your neck. Maybe you've received a paperback from your teacher. And it had a a scribble at the top, a little A. Maybe there was even a plus next to it. Maybe you've looked at your family and you've seen kids that you have poured your life into and now they're, they're raised and grown up and they're, they're making it on their own and you just go, oh, yes. This fills you with a little bit of sense of pride. Or maybe you, you actually just, you just look in the mirror in the morning and you go, yep, looking good today. Looking pretty good. I like that. You may feel like standing up in front of all the cameras, in front of all the crowds, and saying, I got no one to thank but myself. But the fact of the matter is, if what Genesis says is true, we are nothing without our maker. We wouldn't even be here. What an incredible gift this thing called life is. The life we live, it's a gift. This is his way. It's his way. But as we'll see as we come to, the, the, to chapter 3, verse 19, all of what has been given can very easily be taken away. What's been brought up out of the dust, it can very easily just return back to the dust. Verse 19, chapter 3, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think it's very interesting, the Hebrew words that are used here. The word for Adam, Adam, and the word for ground, Adama. They sound similar, don't they? It's kind of as if God wanted humanity to have an ongoing reminder, this is where you came from. This is where you can return. And even so, God blesses these creatures. He blesses them in incredible ways. We mentioned last week, were God any less good? He could have created this man just for for slave labor. You're just going to work. I created this beautiful creation here, and I just need someone to tend to it. I don't want to bother with it. You do it. You're going to work this ground. He could have done that if he were any less good. He could have also, as we said last week, he could have just made him as pet food. You're just going to be the the, the kibble for the the animals that are all over this planet. That's going to be you. That's your role, dust man. Enjoy. But instead, we see this good God pouring out his goodness by taking this man and putting him in paradise for him to enjoy. It's amazing. Look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
As if the things that he created, as if this planet that he created was not good enough, now God is going to create a garden. This is going to be like the area where everything that is good on this planet, it is localized. And it is there for this man to enjoy. It's going to be amazing. You may have been to some beautiful gardens in your day. Maybe you've been out to the Huntington Library out in Pasadena area, and you walk those grounds, and you go, wow, this is, this is amazing. It's beautiful here. Maybe you've been to the, the uh, Fullerton Arboretum, or maybe you've been to some even exotic places. Maybe you've been to the Hawaiian Islands. You get there, and you just go, whoa, this is incredible. Maybe you've even been someplace more phenomenal than that, if there is a place. But I'm sure that this garden surpassed all gardens. This one was a sight to behold. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food was there. This must have been spectacular. Incredible. In fact, the very word for Eden in Hebrew, you know what it means? It means delight. Delight. You just, have you ever had those experiences where you're, you're you find yourself somewhere. Maybe, maybe you've had a, a plate of food just put in front of you, and you take the first bite and say, I've eaten a lot of stuff, but whoa, this is good. Delight. It's just, it's just incredible. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. This is paradise. You know, they say the property value is location, location, location. This was as de- desirable as you could possibly get. Don't even bother to look it up on Zillow because you can't afford it. There's no way you can earn enough money to be located in this spot. But Adam didn't have to. It was just a gift to him. I'm going to make the most incredible place ever seen by eyes. And here you go. You're there. Amazing. Check out the attention to detail given here. Clearly, there's something important that the Bible wants us to see here. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was there. Skipping down, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And then he goes in to talk about the various rivers and where they go. The first one, we can't seem to locate. We don't know where, where it's at in this land. Havilah, well, I don't know where that's at. People, scholars have debated for years and years and years. And yet you see they give a lot of detail to what's there. There's gold there, isn't there? This is a place that's of incredible wealth. Not only is there gold, but there's delium, there's onyx, there are trees that are producing this, this fragrant resin there. You just walk in and like, whoa, what's this aroma going on here? And then onyx, you see these beautiful, multicolored, multi-layered rocks there. This place is incredible. There are lush, beautiful fruit-producing produce, trees. There's mention of the tree of life. There's, when you look at the, the Hebrew here, we're not just talking about a tree that is alive. We're talking about something that the text suggests is a tree that actually produces life to the ones who eat of it. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. There's a river that flows out of Eden, watering its gardens. that branches off and goes all these different directions. This place is incredible. And there's a lot that we could discuss about Eden and the garden that was there. But for the sake of time, let's just 
zero in on just a few different things. It's a beautiful place. It's a life-giving place. It's a wealthy place. It's a place that's said, that said something about who God was and how much he loved this dust man. It's a place that was specifically designed for God to dwell with the people that he created, who he made in his image. This is his way. Some scholars have pointed out there's actually a great deal of resemblance to this place that we're seeing described here in Genesis chapter 2 and some other places that have been described in the Bible, places where God intended to dwell with humanity. The tabernacle is one of them. After God had led Israel out of 400 years of dark and painful bondage in Egypt, he takes them to the foot of the mountain, and there he covenants with them. He says, you are going to be my people. And he gave them instructions to build this elaborate tent. It was going to be constructed of fine linens, of gold, and other precious metals. It would be a place where he would live among them. Read Exodus 25 through 31 and tell me that God is not concerned about dwelling in a place of beauty with his people. When we look at Eden, we're also, we're also pointed to a resemblance that exists in this thing called the New Jerusalem. If we turn to the end of the book, to Revelation chapter 22, and look at verse 1, where John is receiving this revelation of what heaven is going to be like, he describes it this way. Then the angel showed me, think about this, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, what's there? The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. A river bringing life? A tree of life that's bearing fruit? The absence of anything accursed? And God dwelling among a people that worship Him. Do you see the resemblance? It's uncanny. From the very beginning, God is determined to dwell with these dust people, these human beings that He created, and He wants to dwell with them in paradise. How's that for good news? How's that for hope and a future? How's that for a happy ending to a story that's rent with tragedy and suffering and pain? It's amazing. Verse 15 tells us, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word for put... In verse 15, in other places in the Bible, it indicates being placed in a, in a place for rest and safety. That's what God is providing for this person. Doesn't that sound good? A place of rest and safety? I mean, raise your hand if you wouldn't love to be in a place like that. It's incredible. This is exactly what God is providing for 
Adam here in Genesis 2.15. The garden is this place of rest and safety. The best place possible for him. Because it's a place where he can live and thrive and talk with God and be in relationship with him. This is the way God created it to be. So God puts him there. Then we're told what this man's purpose is. What is he supposed to do in this place? Our translation and most other English translations, they say something similar. They say something like this. The Lord God took the man, they put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. Now this is one of those phrases that is hotly debated. It's under a lot of scrutiny. Without taking us into the weeds of Hebrew grammar here, Let me just point out that one of the main problems with the way this is translated here is that we're led to believe that God's curse that's going to come up in chapter 3, verse 23, that's nothing more than what God originally intended. This doesn't quite make sense. How can Adam be cursed in chapter 3, if it was God's intent even before the fall that he was going to be doing the very same thing, work and keep the garden here in 2.15, it just doesn't make sense. I think the better translation is this. God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to worship and obey. To worship and obey. As a place that God would dwell with Adam just as the tabernacle where God would later dwell with his people. I believe Adam's role there was to just glorify God and bring him honor as he lived in accordance with God's intended way for him to live. And and as he remained in right relationship with God. A man by the name of John Salehammer. He's a former associate professor of Old Testament Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. He's also a former uh, professor at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, so many different places he's taught. Biola. He says this, Adam was to be a priest, not merely a, a worker or a keeper of the garden. This is about a special role that Adam, this man who's made in God's image and the relationship he was supposed to have with his maker. This is his intended purpose. He's there in perfect relation, perfect harmony with God, at the same time just living as a man was intended to live and giving glory to God as he's doing so. This is incredible insight, isn't it? It was the pagan creation myths that described man being created for the sole purpose of, of, of working the land and just being slave labor here. But the Bible tells us that humanity was made in God's image. We see the Creator pouring out this incredible blessing upon him, desiring to be in this relationship with him and to, uh, desiring a dwelling place among him. And I think further evidence of this is, is what follows right after this phrase. Right after this, we see the conditions for remaining in right relationship with God, remaining in this paradise that God created. He says, the Lord God commanded the man. So I think God puts the man in the garden to worship and obey, and then immediately he says, here's how you're going to do it. 
Here's how you're going to live a life of worship and obedience to me. Essentially, God is saying, I'm putting you here. Worship and obey me. Now, let me show you how it's done. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first part of the command is simply to to live and enjoy and eat. Any tree that's here, every tree that's good, that's pleasing to the sight and that's good for food, it's there. You can eat all of this. Look, I've given you all. Look at this paradise for you. It's amazing. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. Among these trees is the tree of life. Presumably would have nourished and preserved the life of Adam. Amazing. No health centers needed. You have the tree of life. No retirement plan. You got the tree of life. No saving. No, no tree of life. This is great. Adam would live and thrive and enjoy paradise. He would glorify God. His life would be a testimony of how good God is, how good God made everything. This is God's way. And the only condition, one condition, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Well, it'll bring death. It'll bring death. It's like God is saying, trust me, obey me. My way is good. My way is best. My way is the way of life. To disobey this command would be to go ahead and eat of that tree. It would have essentially been to say, God, I don't trust you. I don't think you know what's best for me. I want to decide for myself what is good for me and what is not good for me. And isn't that the motto of our own hearts? Isn't that the song that the blood that flows through our veins sings? I want it my way. I want to be my own boss. I don't want to have anyone telling me what to do, how to think, how I should or shouldn't live. No one's going to push their ideology, their truth on me. I'm going to do what's true to myself. I'm going to take destiny by the helm and I'm going to chart my own course. This is my way. My way or the highway, baby. And that kind of sounds good. I have to admit that kind of sounds good. It's in step with the spirit of this age that we're living in. That's what all those blogs that I read, the songs that I sing, the social media posts, those Disney princess films are telling me. That's what Jillian Jacobs on the Diet Coke commercial was telling me. She says, life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon even though that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, (laughs) have a Diet Coke. Diet Coke, because I can. (laughs) Just do you. Do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. Only one problem. If what this book tells us is the truth, then that way ends in death. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3.19 says, Out of the dust you were taken, 
For you are dust, to dust you shall return. That's the curse. There, on the other side of the decision, we see the verification of God's command here. I told you that doing it your way was going to lead to death, and that is now exactly what you've got. For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God out of His great mercy to take unto Himself the soul of our dear brother here departed, we therefore commit His body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I think it's important that we note here that this death, it's a multifaceted death. Not only is physical death inevitable, and not only would there be death between Adam and this special relationship that he had been designed to enjoy with God, but there would also be death inside of his heart, and it would turn his heart to stone. We see that described in Ezekiel 36, 26. And with these hearts of stone, human beings themselves would actually become agents of death. They would become perpetuators of death. They would go on to prematurely end their lives as a way to escape the miseries of life. They would demand assistance from physicians to bring about their own deaths at a time that they thought was best for them. They would celebrate and enjoy watching death as entertainment. They would devise new and improved ways of inflicting death, of spreading death out there to others. And they would inflict it. They would inflict death on the helpless and even the unborn in the name of choice. Joseph Stalin, one of the world's most prominent mass murderers, he once said, Death is the solution to all our problems. No man, no problem. What a hauntingly cold and tremendously sad statement. And yet, inevitably, that is the trajectory of humanity apart from God. This is my way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 14 and then Proverbs 16 tells us. And I don't know if old blue eyes had that in mind when he said I did it my way. The problem with my way is that it has a certain visual appeal, but it has the stench of death. God's way is better because, well, his way is life, and my way is not. In his goodness, he created a garden paradise. Every possible thing that humanity could possibly desire was there, freely met for him. It would be the greatest place that he could possibly exist, enjoy life, and flourish. It was a place where he could live in harmony with this incredibly beautiful, incredibly powerful creator that had intentionally designed him in his image. And while we know the fateful choice that the human race made, we also know that God intervened to make a way for his people to one day return to paradise, and live there forever, as he intended from the start. The question for us, as it was for Adam, will we trust, will we obey, or will we insist on doing it our own way? 
For us in 2019, God's way means looking to Jesus, the one who was sent from God to die the death that we rightfully deserved, to make a way for us to once again be made right with God, to obey him, to trust him. It's to do it his way. Place your trust in Jesus. Turn from your rebellion, your turning away and doing things your way, and turn back and look to the cross and say, yes, I deserve that. I should be up on that thing. But Jesus, thank God, Jesus went there for me. Praise the Lord. Trust and obey. It means trusting in Jesus. But to do it our way means to keep going our own way. It means to keep running from him. Maybe for you it means just trying to, to pull myself by my own, up by my own bootstraps and, and do it my way. I'm going to try to be good enough on our own. But let me tell you this. It doesn't work. It would be a mistake. God's way is better than my way because God's way leads to life and mine does not. So we need to decide. His way or my way. Would you pray with me? God, we, this is a sobering passage that we look at this morning. We see just how incredibly good that you have been to the human race, how you intended it from the very beginning to be, and we see the choice that was presented before us, Lord. Choose paradise or choose to do things your way, and that is the way we know, Lord, that we have chosen, and we confess that to you. Lord, if there is someone in this room who still has not turned their eyes upon the cross and said, I, I am messed up and I need Jesus because I have chosen death and I see death springing up all over my life. I want life. I want the hope of paradise with you forever, Lord. If there is someone like that in this room, I pray that their pride would be tossed to the ground and they would simply say, Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. I need you. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus Christ did on the cross in taking my place, that I might be washed clean and forgiven, given new life with you, and given the promise of life eternal. And for the rest of this, us, Lord, we pray, God, that you would help us to continue to trust, continue to obey, because it is so easy to get caught up in ourselves and want to do it our way, even after we've trusted you. God, help us to surrender. Help us to return. Help us to trust in Jesus and live with him as the Lord of our lives. We love you. Thank you for this time we've had together in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.